This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Thank you all for being here. Thank you to Dr. Kim, to all the crew for setting all this up. Um, So today we're going to be talking about protest movements and repression around the world, but mostly in Africa and Latin America, especially in about the last 20 years. So at the beginning of the 21st century, there was a lot of optimism about how protest movements could topple dictatorships, could bring about major political changes. There were the color revolutions in Eastern Europe. There was the Arab Spring around the Middle East and North Africa. And more recently, there have been a wave of protests around the world in both democratic countries and in authoritarian settings. And these have run into some strong headwinds. This is a time in the world where there's increasing authoritarianism or democratic erosion in many countries, and even democratic governments have greater surveillance capabilities and greater policing powers than governments ever have in the past. So one of the main questions that my research asks is how citizens can still mobilize to challenge unpopular governments and policies in an era when there is greater repression across both authoritarian and democratic countries. And This is also a time where people are polarized. It's hard to get people to agree on things. It's hard to gather a large critical mass of people that you need in order to challenge a government and potentially bring it down. And governments are always going to paint their opponents as violent. People like Gandhi, like Martin Luther King Jr., Politicians who opposed them at the time said they were being violent, even when they were using nonviolent civil disobedience. And governments will also call their opponents enemies of the nation. So how do you try to overcome this? One way that you can do this is by tapping into national histories. This can help unify people behind a common cause and common knowledge that they have. And it also shows that people see themselves still as citizens, as part of a longer national history, and they can reclaim that from the government potentially. So the image here that you see on the left is from Burkina Faso from protests in 2014. The image on the right is from Haiti and protests in 2019. So in Burkina Faso, protesters were opposing the government of President Blaise Compaoré. Compaoré was trying to stay in power for an unconstitutional third term. He was a dictator who'd been in power for a while. And one of the main symbols that people used in order to mobilize against Compaoré was the figure of Thomas Sankara. Sankara was an earlier president. He was a military officer who took power, but then implemented very popular and progressive policies. And some people still talk about him as Africa's Che Guevara. 
And so people united behind the figure of Sankara, which also was particularly powerful because Kampoore was alleged to have assassinated Sankara. So they were tapping into this national history in order to all draw together and say, we want a leader like Sankara, we don't want Kampoore in power anymore. And in Haiti, people were opposing the government of President Jovenel Moïse, uh, who was still in power until 2021. And Moïse was being compared by protesters. If you look at the sign here, um, not just to Hitler, but also to Papadoc Duvalier, who was an earlier Haitian dictator and who presided over a very much hated secret police force called the Tonton Makut. And protesters were comparing Jovenel Moïse's plans for a new national intelligence agency, the ANI, to Duvalier and the thugs he had empowered in the past. And so people were trying to use these national histories to show what they were opposed to and what they wanted instead. So this is an example of what we call historical framing. And the way that historical framing can help you to grow protests is to try to get people to think about this historical episode and how the present maps onto that. So most protest movements start off very small. There's a few people who gather, and then if the government doesn't like what they're doing, they may crack down. They will send police or militias or gangs to go after protesters. And if they use violence against protesters, there's sometimes what's known as backlash mobilization, where other people see the repression and decide this shouldn't stand, the government should not be doing that. So if that repression is very shocking, people weren't expecting it, they're trying to make sense of what's going on. And the way that we try to make sense of unexpected events is through what's known as frames. So there's cognitive frames and collective action frames. So cognitive frames are kind of the, direct, the connections we draw within our heads. They're the way we understand the world. We draw comparisons, we have reference points when we're trying to understand what we're seeing and what we're hearing. Collective action frames are the sorts of messages that activists spread to try to get people to see things in the same way that they do, trying to get people on the same message as them. And historical memory offers a particularly good common reference point for people who are trying to make sense of events by themselves and also for activists who are trying to get people organized behind their same cause. And historical memory is something that varies a bit across people, across communities within a country, but it gets spread through education systems, through families, through museums. And so there's still large numbers of people who have similar reference points, who have similar frames that they can either latch onto themselves 
or be pushed towards by activists. So how does this work in a protest movement? What's the process? So protests begin, and here I'll use examples from Black Lives Matter protests in the United States. Black Lives Matter protests began early on in the 2010s, but they tended to be just in one or two cities. They did not necessarily involve very large masses of people. There were more committed activists who were involved in many of the initial protests. But then in 2020, with the murder of George Floyd, this was a triggering event. This was a particularly brutal murder of an unarmed black man, and this shocked people out of their seeming complacency. And activists also tried to get protests to grow by drawing parallels to the civil rights movement in the 1950s to 1970s in the 20th century. They were trying to get people to understand that contemporary violence was just as bad as what had happened in the past, and so a new equivalent to the civil rights movement was needed to change that. And this helped lead to increased mobilization around the country of millions and millions of people in an unprecedented mass movement. So I look at historical framing and how it affects protest movements, how it helps them grow in a few different contexts, but I'm going to talk today especially about Nicaragua and Chile. In Nicaragua, the government that's still in power today is led by President Daniel Ortega and the Sandinista Party. And they were once one of the most popular governments in Latin America after Ortega and the party returned to power in 2007. And they had legitimacy in part based on their longer standing history. The Sandinistas had taken power first in 1979 in a revolution against the hated Somoza dictatorship. And so people still in the last couple decades were thinking about the government of Ortega and the Sandinistas as carrying on that legacy, which for many people in Nicaragua involved coming out of poverty, getting a voice within politics that had been denied to them for the first time. But also for other people, Ortega and the Sandinistas had brought stability at a time when other countries in Central America were plagued by gang violence. They had brought economic growth and they had brought a stop to the sort of political turmoil that Nicaragua had experienced in the past. So there were few major protest movements that challenged the government in its first decade in power from 2007 to about 2017. And those protests that did emerge tended to be about specific issues. They weren't about changing the entire government. That changed though in 2018. So in April 2018, the government announced cuts to pensions for elderly retirees. And this was initially met with some pretty limited protests. There were older retirees and young activists who started protesting in the capital city of Managua 
and in a couple of other cities on April 18th, so two days after these reforms were passed. But these initial protesters, who were only maybe in the dozens, a little over 100 tops, they were beaten by members of the Sandinista Party youth group as police looked on. So they were attacked with impunity, and images went viral around Nicaragua through WhatsApp, on Facebook, of elderly retirees who were bloodied, who had been beaten, and this outraged people. This was not something they were expecting from a government they had thought was good. Then, on April 19th, the protests grew. Students from universities around Managua and in other major cities launched larger protests, and they were met by police and by pro-government paramilitary forces with lethal repression. The government in earlier protests, earlier in the 2000s, had never killed anyone. They might have beat a few people up, but actually killing people in the streets was something totally new. And this led protests to expand rapidly around the country to hundreds of thousands of people. So how did this happen? Historical framing played a major role. And my research here was conducted with Eric Mosinger, who's at Santa Clara University, and Diana Paz Garcia and Charlotte Fowler, who were at the time students at McAllister College. So seeing people out in the streets being killed by their government flipped people's cognitive frames. It flipped the way they were thinking about their government and they were thinking about the country that they were living in. People had thought they were living in a democracy that maybe had some problems, maybe it wasn't 100% free, but it still wasn't the sort of place where the government would kill people in the streets for expressing their political opinion. And seeing this repression flipped people's minds to thinking they were living in a dictatorship, just like the hated Somoza regime that the Sandinistas had overthrown almost 40 years before. And activists tried to tap into this. They also spread a collective action frame. They said, all right, if we are living in a dictatorship, what do we need to do? We need a mass uprising like occurred in 1979 and before. And people bought into this. They could see the parallels for themselves and activists were able to help them draw these connections. So the image on the left there is from a, mu a mural in the city of Leon of student protests in 1959 being repressed by the Somoza regime's Guardia Nacional. And the second image on the right is from 2018 of people protesting in the streets in a very similar scene almost 40 years later with police shooting at them at the same time. So people could see, oh, we're maybe reliving the same events as the past. And they said, all right, we now know what we're doing. We know what sort of country we're living in. Here's how this is going to change the way we react. We're going to take to the streets.
Now, in interviews, people told us about how their perceptions changed. Someone who we interviewed said in the city of Messiah, many people who they knew were or are members of the Sandinista party. They had supported the government. They were pro-revolution and it was a deep-seated political identity. However, they woke up when they saw the government using bullets against protesters in the streets. And this led people to equate President Ortega and the previous dictator, Somoza. People reappropriated slogans from the revolution, like que se rinda tu madre, let your mother surrender, which was a slogan from uh, the poet and guerrilla fighter Leonel Rugama, who was killed in 1970 during the revolutionary struggle. And people saw that if this is now a dictatorship, what we need to do is have a revolution. If we took care of one dictator, we can take care of another. And we were able to find through statistical analyses of where protests took place that there were more protests in municipalities, in cities and towns that had been more involved in the revolutionary struggle in the 1970s. So places where the memory of the revolution was stronger, was more alive, these places were more likely to rise up in 2018. Now, we saw in Nicaragua that historical framing could be powerful in helping mobilize protest. And in 2019 and 2020 in Chile, it looked like the same process was happening again. Protests broke out in the capital city of Santiago over initially a metro price hike. The price was being raised 30 pesos and students began protesting. These were initially very small protests, but police beat the student protesters. They arrested many of them, and this led the protests to expand. And people's grievances became not just about the metro price hike, but about continuing inequality in the country, the continuation of a constitution established under Chile's military dictatorship under the Pinochet regime that ended in 1990. And people began to equate what was happening in the president under President Sebastián Piñera with what had happened in the past under Pinochet. People said, it's not just 30 pesos, it's 30 years, 30 years without change since the dictatorship ended. They had signs saying 2019 equals 1973, when the dictatorship began. And they called President Piñera a murderer just like Pinochet, making posters like the one you see here that combined the faces of the two leaders. So we wanted to see, all right, if historical framing helped protests spread and expand in Chile, could it still work to keep people engaged after protests had subsided? When the COVID pandemic hit in early to mid 2020, protests in Chile largely ended. People started to care more about the pandemic, about the decline in the economy. And so the causes of the protests 
around reducing police violence, around constitutional change, were not as much on top of people's minds. So we carried out a survey experiment in March of 2021 before there were supposed to be elections for a constituent assembly that was going to be writing a new draft constitution. And we surveyed a representative sample of 1,900 Chilean adults. This was research conducted again with Eric Mosinger from Santa Clara University and with Lisa Mueller from McAllister University. So we wanted to see, all right, it's been a year at least since protests ended. If we show people historical frames, can that get them re-engaged around the causes of the protest movement? Can it get them to care more again about police reform, about making changes to the forces that used violence against protesters in 2019 and 2020? So we thought that if you are showing people historical images, if you're helping them draw these connections, if you are using language that equates current events with the past, this should lead them to be more supportive of protests, to be more supportive of police reform. And we expected this to be somewhat moderated by people's ideology and their age. So why might that be the case? Protests in Chile and politics in general were very polarized on a left-right spectrum. So people who were left-leaning tended to hate the Pinochet dictatorship and support protests in 2019 and 2020. Many people on the right supported the dictatorship. They were not so opposed to its legacies. They didn't like the protests. But we thought that older respondents, people who had lived through the dictatorship, if we used historical framing, if we helped them see events in 2019 as similar to what had happened in the 1980s to past repression, that might make them more willing to support protests or support police reform today. We know that older people in general get more conservative about law and order issues, so we wouldn't normally expect them to support police reform. And we looked at a few different measures to try to figure this out. We asked people about their support for protesters and their demands. We gave them a hypothetical option to donate either to an organization that was working to tackle economic inequality or working on police reform. And we also had people write a letter to a hypothetical representative at the Constituent Assembly who was going to be writing the new constitution to see what they would say, how much they would write. And the way that we tried to tease this out and see if historical framing had effects or not was through an experimental setup, through showing some people a control, our sort of baseline condition, and some people other versions of this same thing with historical framing. So in the control setup, people saw a text that talked about the protests in 2019 and said during those protests, police committed many acts of violence against individuals, and this in some cases was beating them, it blinded some, and even killed some people.
and this had a picture of a police officer who was pepper spraying someone. Then we wanted to have two different examples of historical framing. So in one, what we called the low dose, um, we just added something to the text. There was the same picture there, but now we added to the text that this repression reminded some people of repression, of acts of violence that security forces committed under the Pinochet regime. And then in our high dose condition, sort of the most historical framing, we had the text that was drawing connections to the dictatorship, and we also showed people an image that was very similar to the contemporary one. It was going to be a police officer shooting tear gas at people in a very similar position in 1983 to protests in 2020. So what did we find? We found that if you're looking across everyone all together, this didn't do a whole lot. If you were you know, just showing people these historical frames, it might not change their opinions all that much if you're looking at the overall population. It might, though, have led uh, in the high-dose framing where you're showing people photos and including the text drawing parallels to the past. That might have increased people's engagement with the constitutional reform process. However, showing people the higher dose, showing them both pictures that help draw connections between the present and the past and having the text there, that did seem to affect people's donations to police reform. So when it came to ideology, having this historical framing reinforced people's pre-existing leanings. So it led left-wing leaning people to be more supportive of police reform, to donate more towards that cause, and right-wing people, they were even less likely to donate to police reform than before. So on here, ideology is on a scale from one to 10, uh, where one is left-leaning and 10 is furthest to the right. So people who were furthest to the right were much less likely to donate to police reform when they saw historical framing. People on the left were more likely. And when it came to age, we found that if you're seeing this high-dose historical framing, both images and the text, this made older people especially less resistant to police reform than they might otherwise have been. It meant that they were putting more money towards organizations working on human rights and working on police reform. So what do we take away from all of this? First, history can be a very powerful tool for mobilizing protests and for building support for change, even when people are no longer in the streets. But interpretations of history and historical frames are polarized. People view them differently depending on their pre-existing political opinions and what they think about the past. And so activists might need to target what they're saying and the messaging they have, or they'll have to try to shift people's thinking about both the present and the past. Another finding out of this is that protests alone are not necessarily enough for change. 
especially when there is greater authoritarianism around the world and less support for democratic change. Ortega is still in power in Nicaragua. Police reform has not happened in Chile. In fact, a bill was passed this year giving the police even more powers and shielding from accountability. So for history to be able to be used by activists as a resource, it has to be preserved. And so activists need to keep history alive and spread historical memory as the tinder that can allow protests to erupt and spread around countries. And so we see this in Nicaragua with this image on the left is from the Museo de la Memoria contra la Impunidad, uh, the Museum of Memory Against Impunity, um, which this was when they were allowed to display things in Nicaragua. Now it's only online because they were banned. And on the right here is a memorial wall and garden at a metro station in Santiago in Chile that protesters took over in 2019. So keeping memory alive is really important to ensure that you can use it again in the future. Thank you everyone and looking forward to your comments and questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.